I want to turn our attention this morning to the passage that we've already looked at from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Might seem a funny place to go on Palm Sunday. But when we think about the book of Deuteronomy, then maybe all of a sudden it'll make sense. The book of Deuteronomy is the story of God's people and Him giving them instruction about their life. This is a story and this is instructions that God has given to His people after He has saved them out of Egypt. This is, in many ways, the retelling of the law, the Deuteronomy, the the second law that He's given to them. And He's instructing them how they ought to live. And He gives them a series of instructions And we see even in those first chapters that the people are failing at those instructions. If you're opened in in your Bible the way that my Bible is, is laid out, the heading right before chapter 10 is the golden calf. But over and over again, the people are being led out of Egypt by God and yet they are flailing. They are failing. Failing at it. And then all of a sudden, there is this pause. This pause that God gives in Deuteronomy. Where he draws them close and he begins speaking to them. Now, I grew up in a tradition that didn't celebrate Palm Sunday, didn't even celebrate Easter or Christmas. I grew up in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. And so a minister standing up in a robe and wearing a collar with kind of the fanciness, the, those Presbyterians would say, no, 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 no. <laughs> and yet in, in our Apostles' Creed, we say, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Have you ever wondered why that key detail is, is in there? All of the things that are said in the Apostles' Creed, Pontius Pilate has as much Participation in the Apostles' Creed is the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? Because Christianity is a religion, unlike all the other religions of the ancient world, that is rooted in history. That when we celebrate Palm Sunday, we celebrate there was a day, there was a morning, there was dew on the ground, the sun was creeping up, there were birds flying around, and Jesus, God in the flesh, rode into Jerusalem. This really happened. This isn't a myth. This isn't just a story. This is a historic reality. And yet, the passage that we so often read, the passage that is fulfilled here from Zechariah, it's so interesting. Pastor Ken McCurd in the Dwaynesburg Church, where we're currently worshiping, has been preaching on Zechariah. And he points out just prior to this quote about the king coming humbly on a donkey, is the defeat of the war horses. Is God saying you cannot trust in chariots and war horses, and instead, here's how my king will come. He comes humbly. Now, Jesus was not a fool. And he knew full well that the same people that at the beginning of the week, praising him and celebrating him, yelling, Hosanna! God is here to save us! 
at the end of the week would be cursing at him, spitting at him, saying, crucify this man. And what we see on Palm Sunday and what we see in this passage of Deuteronomy is God's heart. God's heart to love and to care. Just how far Jesus Christ was willing to go to serve his people and to care for his people. And in Deuteronomy 10, when God hits pause, what he wants to do is he wants to say, let's tune up. Now, I am the least musical person you might ever possibly meet. I was terrified that this morning when I was told that the mic would just be on, that I would sing one of the hymns, Amplified, and you would have to suffer through me singing Amplified. Fortunately, that didn't happen. But we have friends who are gifted and talented musicians. The husband and wife couple. And she plays the harp, and he plays the classical guitar. And we were, we were really blessed to go to a concert of theirs in Troy, New York recently. And in the, in the middle of the concert, actually before, a little before the concert and then in the middle of the concert, there were these moments where they made sure that they were playing the same notes. And the harp is kind of this big, beautiful, robust instrument. And the guitar, right, is, is in comparison very weak and, and almost frail. So several times throughout the show, the harp would be plucked. And the guitar would be tuned in accordance. So that those tones would match up with each other. What Deuteronomy 10 is, it is God saying to the people of Israel, I want you to tune your hearts to the note that I am about to play for you. I want us to tune our hearts together so that we might play music that is most beautiful. And so he gives us this information, and in some ways it is, it's kind of all bound up together. God declaring who he is and then yet quickly inviting service. God declaring who he is and how he has saved the people and yet reminding them that they were once sojourners. All bound together. And what we see, what we learn, is that when we are bound up and connected to God, we are necessarily connected to others to love them. He says in this passage, you will serve God, and yet he says, how will you serve God? By loving others. That our service to God is bound up in our service to others. And what God shows us here is that he has a heart of love and compassion that cares. Now, I understand. I'm fully aware that when a guest minister stands up and a passage out of Deuteronomy that says justice and the sojourner, some of you probably rightly have that a little alarm in your head that says warning political sermon ahead. I promise that is, that's not what I have in mind. I, I don't want to talk about political policies. I don't. I don't want to talk about theories or philosophies behind that. Because what is going on in this passage is none of those things. What's going on in this passage is God saying, 
I want to show you how you ought to be at work. Physically at work. Doing something. Caring for people. A meal that gets brought to somebody when they're sick. To notice when someone is choosing between paying the oil bill or buying their medication. He says, I want you to notice these things and I want you to respond to these things. This is not meant to be political, but it's meant to affect us. There's another Westminster, not the hall in England, but there's a Westminster seminary outside of Philadelphia. And there was a professor there who used to have a joke about Presbyterians and Reformed people. He said that Presbyterian and Reformed people were like the crew of a ship that bragged that their ship was the most beautiful, was the most smooth sailing, finest ship you would ever put together. And that, that crew would brag that they knew every single knot, they knew every single sail and name and every detail on their ship. And they would practice those knots and they would memorize their terms. And their boat would stay moored in the harbor and weaker vessels would go in and out catching plenty of fish and sailing all over the place. But they would sit in the harbor bragging about their boat. That's a danger for us. That we come to passages that God says, I want you to do something with your hands. And we say, I wonder if we can develop a theory about that. I wonder if we can develop a study paper on that. And the author James warns as much in the New Testament. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, he says, what good is that? So Deuteronomy 10 is not an invitation to theorize. It's an invitation to respond to God. It's an invitation to say, Lord, what would you have for me? Now, I know that to respond to God... I think you know that to respond to God sometimes means losing one's comforts. That I could fill up my whole schedule with the things that I enjoy. I could fill up my whole schedule with my preferences and my desires. Shoot, I could fill up my schedule that I don't even have time for my own children, let alone somebody else's children. And yet when God calls us to something, He calls us to make space, to make room in our lives, to consider what would it mean to actually hear this. Because what Paul says at the end of Romans is that everything that was written in the Old Testament was written for the New Testament people of God. That we have a right, we have a duty to say, what does this mean for us today? Now it looks different, of course it looks different. We're not following the pillar of cloud and fire out of Egypt. And yet, here is God revealing his heart to the people that he has saved. Now sometimes, service is actually a good thing in our society. 
I had a cousin who wanted to be a lawyer when he grew up. Now, I want to make a lawyer joke right now. But I feel like I don't know you well enough to know who the lawyers are here. So I will just say, insert lawyer joke, and if you chuckle, then you're probably not a lawyer. But he wanted to be a lawyer. And he talked to his guidance counselor, and his guidance counselor said, Christopher, you have great grades, but you have no extracurricular activities. You need to serve. You need to do. Here are some things that you can possibly do to fill up, to pad out your resume for college and for grad school. And so he did that. There's a, there's a website that kind of pokes fun at Christian society. It's called the Babylon Bee. And it had an article, Youth raises $3,000 so that she can go to Haiti and take a picture with an orphan. That we sometimes see service as an opportunity to let everybody else know that we're good people. That we really care. But we have to understand first that our service flows out of our security in God. It is not how we prove that we're worthy of His love. In verse 14, it says, Behold, the Lord your God belongs to heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. Before He calls them to anything, before He says, I want you to love the sojourner, He says, you were loved by God. And to serve properly, to serve in any way that's not legalism, what we have to understand is that we don't serve so that God loves us. We don't care for people to earn His favor. We don't say, God, look at all of my work. Is it good enough for you? Because we don't come to God through our work. We come to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you're coming to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, then you're not trying to prove yourself to God. You can be confident, you can be sure that God looks on you as someone who says, I have set my heart on you. I love you. I care for you. He is on your side. So as we are called to serve, it doesn't mean that we say, Jesus, have I done enough for you to love me now? God has set his heart on us already. Now, as the passage continues, it says, He is a God above all other gods. Which seems kind of counterintuitive to the Christian faith. Are we saying now that there's this pantheon, that there's all these other gods? But if we remember the original context of Deuteronomy, the people are leaving Egypt and they are going into the promised land. And throughout the promised land is paganism and idolatry. Not hypothetical paganism and idolatry, but real temples and real priests and real sacrifices. And what God is saying through Moses to his people is that I know that you're going to see lots of religions and lots of idols and people are going to talk lots about their gods, but your God is above all of them. Maybe many of you know the story of Elijah. Elijah is literally on the ropes 
almost, almost expelled from the kingdom, in danger for his life. And he kind of has this last stand. And he says to the prophets of Baal, why don't we have a competition? Let's see whose God really is the best. Really is the most significant. Really is above all other gods. It's just one man. And the prophets are many. Baal. And they say, fine. And they set up probably maybe a, the distance between end zones of a football field. They can shout to each other, but they have enough space to kind of do their thing. And there are two sacrifices set up. And Elijah says, you go first. And so they get going. They start praying and freaking and worshiping this pagan god, Baal. There's nothing. There's nothing. They start cutting themselves. And there's nothing. And Elijah can't help but make a joke. He says, you guys have to be louder. He can't hear you. And they're screaming. They're cutting. He makes another joke. He says, maybe your God is in the bathroom. And he left his phone somewhere else. Call back in a few minutes. Be louder. And over and over again, they tried and they tried and they tried. And there was silence from their God. Elijah, now has his turn. And not only is this simply a sacrifice, but he says, let's get lots of water and let's pour water over this fire pit. Have you ever been camping, maybe at a state park, and there's that one designated area that you're supposed to cook, that you know, you're, you're allowed to have a campfire? It's the state of New York, there's rules about everything, and there's that one rusty rim, and you come a few days after a rainstorm, and it's just a swamp of ash, And you think there's never going to be a fire started there? Elijah intentionally makes the sacrifice like that. And he says, God, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting that you would show yourself true here. And he says, immediately, the whole sacrifice, water and all, is consumed by God. Now that hadn't happened yet. And though they were more than just one person, they were going into this world that felt overwhelmed by idolatry. And Moses is saying to the people, God is in charge and he cares about you. Now we don't have the same kind of idolatry today, but we kind of do. Where we're told, you have to set your heart on certain things. You have to point your life towards certain goals. And to accomplish them, sacrifices might have to come. If you want to get ahead in your job, you might have to miss what's going on in your kid's life. If you really want to be happy, you might have to let go of that marriage that you've honored for the last 10 years. Still today, what God is telling us is that though those idols might seem strong, they might seem loud, there is a God who is in charge. He cares for you. Not only does he care for you, what we see in verse 17 is that service is really flowing out of the heart of God. This is who 
he is. For the Lord your God is the God of God and lords of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe. That might be one of those lines that we run past, but for God to say he is not partial and takes no bribe says that in the character of God is real justice. That if you show up to interact with God and you come from the right family and you have the right money, with a wink and a nod, you'll be fine. What about all the rest of us who don't have the right family and don't have the right amount of money? Well, then you're sunk. That he shows no partiality and he will receive no bribe. So, we're currently church planning, and uh, we've, we've church planted before. We're church planning in Cobleskill, New York, which um, many folks have never even heard of unless you're driving on the highway kind of past it. But it's this small little town, and we've been there for about six months, and, and we're kind of in the fundraising season and leaving the fundraising season. And before that, we were in Pittsburgh, and we planted a church down there. And we were in seasons of fundraising, so I, I try to keep up with how people are fundraising just kind of in the, in the broader society. And one of the things that people have done is they've often switched to these, these digital campaigns for fundraising. Maybe some of you have heard this. Websites like Kickstarter. Now, I, I did this one time. I, um, I supported a musician who was making an album. And he set up this website. And the way that it can, he said, look, I don't have an album yet. I haven't recorded it yet. But I need the money to get there. So, if you give $10, when the album comes out, you'll be able to download it digitally. Okay. If you give $15, you'll get to download it digitally and you'll get a sticker. Okay? I don't know that I like your band enough to want a sticker, but okay. If you give $50... We'll give you the download and the sticker and a CD and a T-shirt that you might not ever wear. And you say, okay. If you give $100, you'll get the downloads and the stickers and the CD. And we'll give you four T-shirts that you might not ever wear. And it's, it sounds ridiculous, but it, it kept going beyond that. If you give $2,000... You can pick a song on our next album. Now think about that. If it was a folk band and you decided to give $2,000 and say, I want you to put a rap song on your next album. A little silly. They had one prize beyond that even. They said, if you gave us $4,000, you'll get all the stuff and we'll come to your house and we'll play a show. Now imagine if God did that. Imagine if God said, okay, I tell you what, if you pray to me once a month, once a month, I'll make sure that you always have at least enough in your credit account, in your checking account, to keep the electricity on. And if you pray for me daily, then the electricity and the gas. I tell you what, if you pray for me daily and you show up to worship, I will make sure that you have a job. And... If you pray daily and show up to worship and Sunday school, I'll make it a good job. 
And if you do all that and one of your kids becomes a missionary or a pastor, you'll have a retirement account. (laughs) And if you do all that and all of your kids become missionaries or pastors, I'll come and do a show in your house. (laughs) It sounds absolutely ridiculous. But so often we enter these negotiations with God in our prayers. God, I need this. I'm freaking out about this. Will you give me this? God, if I do this, will you do this? We enter these negotiations. But our God is a God who executes justice, shows no partiality, receives no bribe, and guess what? He desires to offer you grace, regardless of what you can offer him. And you need grace, and I need grace, and he is willing to offer that to us. And so often we kick ourselves and we beat ourselves up. We say, well, I I can't offer this right now, or I can't do this, or I'm a failure, or something's happened in my family. Not all my kids are going to be pastors or missionaries. I'll tell you what. He shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He does not judge us based on what we can give him. But more than just justice, we are told in this passage that God loves those on the fringe, those on the edge. It's one thing to want to be fair to someone. It's another thing entirely to love that person and move in next door to them. Moses says to the people, look, God has chosen you as his people, and he loves you, but his love goes beyond just you. He is great, and he is powerful. He is good, and he is just, and he loves the sojourner. He loves the alien. He loves those on the edge, the fatherless and the widows. God loves the latchkey kid running around in the trailer park. He loves them. He loves the widow who keeps on the electric heater even though it's dangerous because she can't afford to pay her oil bill. He loves the taxi driver that you immediately get in the cab and you know that he's not from America. It's not that he tolerates them. It's not that he says, they can be around, I don't care. He loves them. It's the language that you'd have for a husband to a wife or from a mother to her child. He loves them. And what does it say? It says, he provides for them tangibly, giving him food and clothing. Now, when we hear this, that God loves these people, he cares for them, there can be this tension to say, well, I guess I don't have to. If God's good and he's just and he cares for these people, then I don't have to. And yet to to pit those ideas against each other is kind of absurd. 
When I was a kid, my dad was a carpenter, and he actually he built a house in Orange County. Actually, it, it just went under contract. He, he, he's just selling. It's kind of this tragic moment from my childhood. He's, he's selling this house. But he was a carpenter, and he gave me this red toolbox. And he said, I want you to help me build this house, Sam. I remember one day, we went in, and, and he measured and put marks on a board and said, Sam, I want you to nail here. And Sam, I want you to nail here. And Sam, I want you to nail here. And I missed and I smashed my thumb and I bent nails over. But eventually we stood back and we looked and he said, I want you to help me. And we lifted up. But I had no idea what it was on the ground. We lifted up and we put a wall in place in the middle of this house. Now, my dad was a gifted carpenter and I was anything but skilled labor. And yet he chose to include me, even though I slowed him down. God could care for everyone perfectly, instantaneously. He could have shared his gospel with every single person he ever wanted to in a moment and never used his church. And yet, just the way that my dad handed me that toolbox, God hands us the ministry and the mission of the church. And he says... I want you to help me. And so it's sometimes slower than we'd like and more clumsy than we'd like. And yet the Lord uses the way that we act to care for people. He uses the gifts inside of the church where somebody notices something going on in someone's life and says, I think this person could use a visit. He notices the person who's willing to take the other 15 minutes outside in the cold and not just use their snowblower on their sidewalk, but their neighbor's sidewalk. You say, God in his supernatural providence over all of creation could send a wind to blow the snow away. Or he could use you and your snowblower. (laughs) That he calls us, he invites us to serve alongside of him. Now the challenge, though, is that when we serve alongside the Lord, we can kind of build ourselves up in pride. We can care for people and say, I'm better than this. I'm willing to help you, but I am better than this. I hope you know that. And yet what God says in this passage is, remember that you yourselves were sojourners in Egypt. I want you to care for these people, but remember, you are not better than them. Just up the river from here, is the Vanderbilt Mansion. And I remember when I was in elementary school, we went to the mansion and they talked about the Vanderbilts. That every Christmas, they had this ornate, beautiful, red velvet sleigh, like Santa's sleigh, that the Vanderbilts rode down, if you've been to their house, kind of like up on the cliffs overlooking the Hudson, rode down into town and said, we have come from Richville to bring you poor people gifts. And in their kind of gaudiness, they handed out these gifts and they said, goodbye, we're going back to our gilded mansion. Sometimes our service ends up looking a lot like that. And I don't say hypothetical, I, say, I, I know from personal experience from, from going and serving at a soup kitchen and they say, you can sit and have lunch afterwards 
And so you get your food after you've helped everyone, and you look around and you're hoping to see someone else from your team serving so that you can sit with them, so that you don't have to sit next to the homeless person that you just served food. That when we meet someone, and they've been living in a way that's been destructive to their body and to their hygiene, that we just, in our posture, want to step back. We want to step away. We want to say, I'm better than this. God says, you yourselves were sojourners. Everything that you have is a gift from God. So don't think that if something happened to you in high school or something happened to your parent, if your dad was the one who got into an accident and couldn't provide, that you wouldn't be in the exact same situation as this person. And so we are called to serve in a posture of servanthood. Now, where we live in Cobleskill, it's a poor area. It's a very poor area. And kind of the further north you go, the further away from any major city, the poorer it gets in New York. We just kind of all know that, right? So if you go a little bit further down the Hudson, the houses get a little bit more expensive, right? And we, we can say, well, you know, it, it's easy for you to say that. Where you live, where, where I live in Schoharie County, is considered the most northeastern part of the Appalachian Rural Commission on Poverty. We don't have those problems down here. You know, last year our denomination and our presbytery subscribed to this mapping software. And so this week, in preparation for the sermon, I dropped a pin on this location. And through the wonders of Google, I said, draw a circle that I would take to drive 10 minutes from this location and tell me the kind of people that live in there. Within 10-minute drive of this location, there are hundreds of families that live below the poverty line. Hundreds. Within 10 minutes of this location... There are hundreds, almost a thousand widows living right now. There are opportunities to serve. And we can, we can talk about opportunities. We can get excited. And we can say, yes, I'm going to go solve poverty in India. But what God is calling the people to in Deuteronomy is not to just say, okay, let's triumphantly fix every problem. Say, how do you respond this week? How do you respond today? There are going to be people that come through your country, he says to them. How are you going to care for them? Now, the reason that God does this is because God's heart is to serve. God's heart is to care. It's to love. It's to redeem. It's to fix the world. And the story of Palm Sunday is that moment before that redemption is accomplished in real time. Where Christ defeats sin and death. And if you go to the very back of your Bibles to the book of Revelation, there is a passage that I love 
dearly and I hold up before me because sometimes it's overwhelming. You know, you get home, you're angry at your family, you want to have one minute of quiet, you're tired, and one of my kids runs in and has to grab my attention. And they grab my attention because they've been bugging my wife for the last three hours. And now that I'm home, they can bug me for three hours. But before me is Revelation 21. Where what God says is, Behold, God's dwelling is now with his people. And we had to serve, and we had to care, and we had to love, because people were hurting. People were in need. And there is coming a day when there is going to be no more crying. Because every tear has been wiped away. There is coming a day where there will be no more injustice because every injustice has been done away with. There is coming a day when God will be with his people in perfect harmony and nothing will ever go out of tune ever again. But until that day, God invites us to follow him. He invites us to live our lives in such a way that doesn't say, look God, am I I doing enough to earn your love now? But knowing that we are loved. That just as God could say to the people of Israel, I have set my heart on you and your fathers. That God has set his heart on us. Christ knows us and he loves us. He was willing, not just to celebrate at Palm Sunday, but he was willing to be abandoned on the cross for you. And he invites us all, as much as we can, to make sure that everyone knows the direction that everything is headed. Everything in the world Everything that exists is headed towards that day when everything will be in perfect harmony with God. And until that day, we are invited to serve and to love and to care, to reflect God's service, to reflect God's love to people who desperately need it so that we can say to them, there is a day coming when everything will be right because there is a God who is present who cares and loves us, and he is making everything right. What God's desire is, is that our hearts would be in tune with God's heart. That our hands would be in tune with God's hands. Because God's desire for you, his people, is to be the tangible expression of his love until that day is finally here. You pray with me. Lord, we are so thankful for your holy word. I'm sure, Lord, there are certain things that I did not address in this passage today. And I pray that this one interaction with your holy word would lead to many others, would lead to discussions and studies and examinations of this in the weeks to come and in the years to come. We thank you that you are God doesn't accept a bribe, that you are a God who shows justice to all, and that you have set your love on your people, that we haven't earned it, we can't pay you back, 
you love us. And that you, Lord Jesus, were willing to do everything necessary to care for us, to serve us, to free us from our own sin and our own stupidity. We thank you that we can celebrate Palm Sunday and we thank you that we can celebrate Good Friday and we thank you that we can celebrate the resurrection. And we thank you that there is a day coming which will forever and always be as new and perfect as that reality that you give us a hint at on the morning of your resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.